Jerry, we're back in downtown Toronto. It's hard to believe that we're already on our 10th episode. Can you oh, believe that? God. It's not only that, it's a great day. And it's a great day to talk sports. And it's a great day to talk about a lot of human behavioral issues, as a matter of fact, which we got going here. And I'm really excited today because uh, I want to talk about a lot of things that are going on and some special people that play the game of hockey and what they're all about as people and all the people that were involved in in the decision-making here about not going to the Olympics. But the real thing is I want to start off with a comment, and, and we're going to talk about this as we go on. We're all conditioned uh, to think that our lives revolve around great moments. People remember this. People may not remember exactly what you did or what you said, but they will always remember how you made them feel. And we know how the uh, NHL hockey players are feeling today and how they felt since this new decision. But I want to talk about both sides because they'll always remember what this, how this decision made them feel. I want to clarify something first for our listeners. Sherry, way back when, you yourself said, you talked about the importance of it's a little different, but you talked about the importance of junior hockey players representing their country, having this this opportunity. So talk about how are the, how are the I mean, it's pretty obvious that the players are upset, but I mean, what are your thoughts on well, it? Well, first of all, there's so many issues here, and we want to try and cover both sides because that's what we're about here. I really do feel for the players. I mean, playing for a gold medal and wearing your country's colors and Listening to the national anthem, I mean, I, years ago, it wasn't the Olympics, but there were world championships, and it was a special moment. But you've got four parties here. You've got the IIHF, which is the International Ice Hockey Federation. You've got the IOC, which is the International Olympic Committee. You've got the NHL, the National Hockey League, and you've got the NHLPA, the National Hockey League Players Association. And there was never really any meaningful dialogue. I mean, we knew this decision was going to come sometime, but there was no meaning. I'm talking about when you've got a, a big decision and you've got concerns and issues and problems, these people never really got together with any meaningful dialogue. I mean, they wanted, the NHL wanted their, their travel and insurance paid for, and they thought the IOCE with, with, you know, it's an exceptional situation. What other league stops their league for three weeks? None. Think about think one. about the condensed schedule that you're going to have then, and injury issues. But never mind that. The point is, all of a sudden, the IHF steps up and says they'll pay insurance and travel. IOC never wavered from what they're thinking about because you're dealing with a situation. I believe in supporting every penny of amateur athletes as much as possible. Because, you know, you think about these people that compete in Olympics that are, that, that the whatever they participate in, whatever sport they're in, this is their highest profile. They practice and commit themselves for years and years and years alone, so to speak. The NHL now, we got the top players in the world playing for the National Hockey League. They needed some concessions. And no meaningful dialogue, really meaningful dialogue. And I really do feel for the players here. But think about this, shutting down the league for two to three weeks. Think about that. As you said, nobody else does it, okay? 
And when you look, and, and everybody's yelling at Batman. Batman represents the owners, just like the National Hockey League Players Association represents the players. His constituents are the owners. And here's what. The National Hockey League Players Association didn't have it in their agreement because they honestly believed that who would not want their players in the Olympics. But the previous agreement, there was some, there was a specific article in there about that, about how they tried to come together. And, you know, we, everybody, you know, uh, the horse is out of the barn now and everybody's yelling, uh, let's close the barn door. And so uh, the fact that the IHF just came in, the IOC didn't, they said, and won't give any marketing rights. The Crosby goal, the, the famous Crosby goal, NHL can't use cannot it. use it. You know what I mean? And so they, they, they want to market some of that Olympics to grow the game. The IOC says, well, we have a rule. Well, we do have kind of a difference when you got these professional athletes giving up. And, they, and I feel for the guys I really know. What about the guys that are never going to get a chance now? This would have been their last. Because the next Olympics is five, six years from now. Like, what's price going to be then? And how old is he? And who's coming on? You know, guys that had a surefire shot at this right now, this is their last chance. And hopefully there will be hockey in the Olympics right. in 2022. Yeah. It, I mean, oh, there's it, no it, question. There's no question. It's a great opportunity. Right. but They want to grow the game in, yeah. in China. But, you know, when you rip Batman here, okay, and they, he seems to be a target, and they go after him personally as opposed to the merit. And he represents the owners. And a lot of these owners, you got to remember the United States owners and stuff. The game in a lot of centers is in the profile. NFL football's higher profile. NBA basketball's higher profile in some of those cities. Major League Baseball. In Canada, it's the profile. So we're all upset about it. But in the meantime, when he took over was four hundred million in revenue that that's what they were generating in the NHL and now it's four billion. They've added seven new teams, a lot of new jobs. Salaries are up ten times. So what I understand and, and, and Jonathan Tays and these kind of people, they're hurt. Cause they come out of a place where it's hockey's high profile and the American players. And you know what's gonna happen here too? people haven't talked about those european leagues are going to get killed because where they you know they're and they're going to go there to get players the canadians that are playing in those leagues you know think about that and so but here so so, so sherry are players from the nhl guys like alex ovechkin he's saying i'm going next year i don't care what happens i don't right. care what the circumstances are i'm going is he going to make his way to the KHL maybe so he can participate in the Olympics? Will he leave the NHL for a year? Will a guy like Eric Carlson, who seems pretty adamant about wanting to play in the Olympics as well, will he maybe go to Sweden? Will he go to the KHL? What's going to happen to the NHL if all these players start saying, no, I'm going, There's, I don't care about my contract? That's a breach of contract. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say that right now, and I understand the emotion. And we got to be careful because very often emotion overtakes common sense. Here's what else I want to tell you, though. Hockey Canada and USA Hockey 
gets significant money from the NHL for their grassroots programs. Significant money. I'm not talking about a buck and a half. Let's have an ice cream cone here. Let's share one. I'm talking about significant money. And if you think that Team Canada doesn't understand that and recognizing that these players are under contract, okay, maybe some of these European players that are playing in the league feel that way, you know. Holtby on the other side said, I'm not going if they don't go. And emotionally, but here's what's, here's what's going to happen from this. There's high emotion. Because the players are hurt, and who, if you're a player, who wouldn't want to play in the Olympics? I don't care if it's lawn bowling. I don't care what it is. Here's what's going to be the results here when they come for this new contract now. Because the NHL did propose, because they can opt out in 2020. If, if they would forgive that and not be able to in, until 2022, at least that that was suggested or proposed. I don't know if that was real meaningful dialogue between them that they would consider going. So what's going to happen here now where we got some, some people, just like I said, about how they feel, your decisions and how people feel. We got some negotiation issues coming up pretty soon with the NHL and the, and the National Hockey League Players Association. Because they are emotionally upset about this. Of course. And so, and you and I, you and I that live in this country or hotbeds of hockey or wherever, we want to see the How best. How could you not be upset? You know what I mean? Like, can you think about this? McDavid being the number one center and Crosby being the number two center? I mean, think about this. It's just really too bad because the Olympics is about seeing the best athletes exactly. at their respective sports. And exactly. we're not going to see that in hockey. But here's what I do know. Make no mistake of this. There's going to be fallout from this. Oh, yeah. There's some issues. And, the, and, and, and you know... A storm is upon us, Sherry. Without question. Particularly with the, with the players. I'm really curious to see how they're going to handle the situation. But take a look at this, too. You know what I mean? It's not only the three weeks. It's the condensed schedule. More back-to-backs. You know, we just, we've seen a lot of teams on back-to-backs. Tavares getting hurt in the last one. I mean, you know, there's been some significant injuries coming. I, you know, I understand the plight of the owners. What I'm disappointed in, that knowing all these issues, there should have been meaningful dialogue months and months ago. Stand on it and make no mistake of that. Should have been dissective thinking here incisive thinking well how can we help this how can we make it happen and there wasn't because everybody thought they were going to go they eventually say hey you know we're going to go and it's not happening and right now it doesn't look like it's going to happen and so hey it's one of those things we'll get over it, not seeing the best there i don't know if the players will i don't know if i'm going to get over it because <laughs> i don't know if i I'm going to have much interest in watching it, to be quite honest with you. Well, but. well first of all, there's a question of watching it anyway, because the games are going to be anywhere between 2.30 and 7.30 in the morning. See, I would wake up to watch those games, Sherry, no, no. for the NHL's best. I'm not sure. I probably still will, but I'm not sure if I would feel as inclined to want to watch a game at that time 
You wouldn't well, wake anyway. up. You'd be just going to bed. You'd have to stay up. I would stay up. Sure. Done it in the past. Yeah, I've done I know. it for World yeah, Junior I Championships. No, no, I know. But in the meantime, that is a factor, and it is what it is. And it's and, and, and like I said, though, people remember when you make a decision how they felt. And that's a fact of life. And that's not my quote. That's a plagiarized quote, and I forget who, but who's responsible for that quote. But let me tell you this. Make no mistake, there's going to be fallout here. And there's going to be some more harsh negotiations. Sherry, the 2018 Olympics are still a bit of a ways away, but let's focus now on 2017. What's happening in the NHL right now? The Toronto Maple Leafs have been incredibly hot lately. It's really looking as though they're going to make the playoffs. And, of course, it's in part to the play of one particular player. Well, let me tell you this about that, not only that player. You see, they look like they're going to – if they don't make the playoffs – that means Chicken Little pulled the string and the sky fell because everything has to go wrong for them not to make the play. And when they lose a game the other night, when they lost a game, they were 8-1-1 one and one going into that game. If you'd, have, if you'd have picked up and listened to all the reports after they lost this game to Washington, which is a heck of a point, who's going to end up playing Washington in the first round? Because <laughs> yeah. nobody wants to. And from, you know, so far for their record and the structure that they have and how they play. But you'd have thought that they were just two points out of last. But let me, one of the things I kept talking about and you kept pushing me and say, you know, how are the Leafs going to do? And I, I said to you before on how the older players, the veteran players lead them. And it's not, that isn't what's happening. No, not at all. It's, it's the young how, guys. It's how Matthews and the young guys lead. And the Leafs aren't you know. the only team, Sherry. Look at Edmonton. Drysaddle, McDavid, their young guys are leading them. Look at Calgary, Sean Monaghan, sure, Johnny Goudreau. All of these Canadian teams that are making the playoffs, their young guys are really just taking everyone on. You say it about McDavid. He puts everyone on his back. Oh, without question. Drives them forward. Without question. And, and not only that, the team plays better. They play with more enthusiasm. These guys are character guys to play with, as we said before. And that, you know, so the real, the real situation is this, Matthews. When you watch him on television, he exudes character. The way he backchecks, the way he pursues the puck, if you're open. I mean, people love to play with people like that. They love to play. And he makes it without question. Those players love to play, and he's leading, and it's quiet. It's not like, you know, McDavid and Matthews and these guys aren't saying, get on my back. They just go out and play. They, and just, be, they just put everyone sure, on their back. Sure, that's exactly. <laughs> people just want to get on their back. You know, they just want to do that. And Trotz, who it looks like the, the Capitals are pretty close to the President's Trophy and are going to be that team, and they asked Trotz when he was in here coaching against the Leafs, they asked him if he'd ever seen anything similar to the Leafs' young club success this season. And he said, yes, I have. And his answer went, Edmonton Oilers, way back in the day, starting with 99. And, you know, how can you... They, they, were, in, they were in 30th 
just a year ago, people were laughing at them. And now they're on the verge of catching a playoff spot, which we all expect. And here's what he said, which says a lot about Babcock and his staff. Okay. Says about everybody. This is what Trot said about the Leafs. They play with structure, focus, commitment, and they have good goaltending. Pretty good parts of the puzzle to a winning team. And as you've just talked about, told our listeners, as and you and I have discussed many, many times, it's the young guys too. This isn't a one-and-done kind of situation where one of the veterans, which you've very clearly told everyone, when you talk about the structure, focus, commitment, and good goaltending, all these guys that are kind of not only do, doing it and playing that hard, but leading. You know, Brown's got 19 goals. Martyr just got his 19th goal. I mean, these are guys, you, know, you think about all this, what's going on. Well, you just can't help but think in the back of your head that the Leafs are likely going to win a Stanley Cup in the next five years. Well, maybe sooner. Who knows? I think that they're going to, they're at least going to challenge. They're going to be a contender. You know what I mean? There's no question about that. And they'll fill in. They're going to be the beast in the East. They They will be the beast in the East. They know some, they know some areas that they have to certainly deal with and get better at. It doesn't come easy. You know, Lou Lamorello has been around winning before. He understands it. Shanahan's been around winning before. He surrounded himself with good people. You got to give those guys a lot of credit. And hey, this is the way we do it. And this is the way to be successful. Patience. And they were patient. everybody, hope. When you have hope here about how good they're going to be. And it's been a long time. So uh, it's exciting to be in Toronto. And it's exciting to be a Leaf fan. And for all those people that are. And just to be a hockey fan, as you've said. So... Uh, that's a big factor, and I'm excited for him. And it's, a, I mean, it's, we, we've seen a lot of losing in this community. And now all of a sudden the Raptors are winning. Okay, the Blue Jays, soccer, and now the Leafs. Great time to be in Toronto. Absolutely. Sherry, we're about to be joined by a very notable evaluator of talent. We sure are. There's a, a noted evaluator, been a friend of mine for years, helped me look good. Memorial Cup contenders in two different cities. Uh, he scouted for all, every place, every team that he scouted for. He made a significant, not just a contribution, a significant contribution to how good that team was going to be down the road and uh, highly, highly regarded and respected in the area. And Frank, thanks for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure, sir. They, uh it's good, to, you know. We go way back and stuff like that, and so uh, my buddy. I should, have used, I should have used you years ago as my agent. I'd be richer today. <laughs> yeah, so, so would I. So would I, Frank. So would I, because I could have. But uh, it's all true. And one thing about Frank, I want to tell you, minion. Brutally honest. Brutally honest. He tells you what it is. There's no coloring, and, and to know him is to love him. And, is there any other way to? No. you should be as a scout. That's or as so. a person. As a person. As a yeah. person. So uh, the real issue this is is that it's it's exciting for us. And so, so Frank, I just want to ask you a question. Uh, you've been successful at identifying talent at, uh, for Major Junior and for the NHL. Uh, I just want to know what's the difference. Do you take different approaches to evaluating 
uh, players at each level? No. No, I wouldn't think so. Actually, uh, uh, the only difference there would be would be at the junior level because of the turnaround and the quick turnover. Uh, you know, the old saying, you draft the best uh, player at the time available. The position's not uh, not involved, but uh, that's not true at the junior level. I mean, if you... Uh, if you're graduating four defensemen, you better you better be drafting defensemen early. That type of thing. That that's basically the only difference. At the National League level, you're you are basically drafting the best uh, who you consider to be the best prospect each round, and the position didn't doesn't come into play a whole lot there. Actually, I, I never even thought of it in that term, and that's that's yeah, that's working with you all those years now that I, I, I back. Uh, Frank, what are the key things here? So if there's no difference in identifying a minor midget, and uh, as opposed to an 18-year-old that you got, it's all projection. Well, we've talked about that before. Sure. Yeah, we have, but I want to listen. With, with that, with that change, with that change at the junior level that came into play X number of years ago, fortunately, just on my way out. Um, you know, those those guys, man. They, I, I don't envy what they do now. Uh, they're uh, they have to project and try to try, try to project. Growth and and different things at at a year a year younger and uh, uh, not that I ever had to do it but uh, I would think it would be pretty tough. Well, I mean, uh, I think it is. But so when you're when you're identifying an NHL player, uh, are you looking are you looking down the road what he's going to be in four years or do you? Well, if you're not, you're not doing your job. Uh, that's what scouting is all about. It's about. It's about projection. Of course, what you're seeing, what you're seeing on a nightly basis, a shift, shift by shift basis, it's it's important. But you have to then take that, take your take your impression of what you are seeing as a 17 year old, and 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 forecast that three, four, five, six years down the road, and and what can that what what can that talent become? And uh, that's uh, that's very much a key. So, Frank, when you're evaluating talent, what are the key characteristics that you look for in a player? Do well, it's changing, and it's evolving, and and uh, you have to change with it or get left behind. Uh, it's not that long ago where a big, physical, tough guy that intimidated was an asset. Today, those people can't play, aren't going to play. The smaller guy that uh, was overlooked or, you know, drafted later on... Um, because of the size factor, is now is now uh, has, has, has is now getting more respect, and more of those people are going to play. And uh, so, as time goes by, the game has changed, and uh, and and your outlook and approaches also changes, or you get left behind. Well, you know, I know that you've already you've talked to me when we've traveled a lot about you know this guy's going to be a great junior. I can't project him because he's basically maxed out at what he's going to be what you see is what you to me yeah and that still applies we have i mean <laughs> that's funny we just just were discussing a, a highly profiled junior uh recently that uh, that's along those lines he's 17 years of age today he's a good junior and a good on a good team he's contributing already um he's uh got a good chance to play in the national hockey league but he's not going to grow his present game a whole lot further than what what it is today other than what he uh he gains through uh, some experience moving forward, and uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but the fun of it all is those those kids and uh, those kids that have still a lot of room to grow in different areas and, and develop, and their game is going to evolve. And uh, 
and uh, they're the they're the fun guys to watch their progress over you know over a period of three four five years moving forward. Mm-hmm. Frank, where do you rank a player's character when you're you know you can only evaluate talent so much, but where do you have to just stop and say, okay, this this player has great character or he has poor character, and it's going to affect his draft stock or whether or not we're even going to draft him at all? Well, first of all, most young hockey players from any country, especially Canadians, they they have character. Most of the time, nine point eight times out of ten, those kids have character. It shows through easy. Um, I'm not going to mention any names, but it's not that long ago I uh, removed that uh, the team I was working for uh, kept, oh gosh, five, six kids entirely off the list, entirely off the list based on character. And I agreed with it at the time. Each one of those kids today have played at least a game in the National Hockey League. Uh, did, uh, would I still want any of those players? Probably not, but they've played in the National Hockey League and none, none of them made the list of that particular team because of character. So, you know, coaches are paid a whole lot of money to work with people and, uh, and uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, kids mature, and uh, that's that. But character certainly is important. But as I said, like the, the character of, of a young hockey player, the majority of the times, is very high. Well, you know, we used to talk in junior when you and I were together. When we aren't, we talk a lot. We we feel really good if we get five, six players out of the junior draft that are going to contribute to winning. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, even though we had 15 rounds and so forth, that uh, Frank had one of the most successful drafts in junior hockey. Seven out of the first eight picks went to the NHL. And the one, one of the guys that didn't was one of the best players and got run over by a tractor in the summer. And so uh, that's how he identifies. But Frank, I got to talk, I got to ask a question about picking 27th in the first round or when you're picking a third rounder, like, where did, about your confidence and how those players are going to contribute? Because uh, let's be, you know, sometimes you got to get lucky. Oh, sure you do. Of course you do. But uh, you know, I, over the, you hear this term, like, scouting isn't an exact science, and that uh, that sort of irks me. To be honest, I didn't know that owning, managing, coaching was an exact science either, and. Uh, if you do your work, uh, you're going to get lucky once in a while. And uh, But you need to do that. You need, you need to get lucky once in a while. The National League level, you've got to hit on your first pick, whether it's number one overall or number now number 31. That guy's got to play at some point uh, for sure. And uh, you just hope that beyond that, uh, you know, the staff can come up with another guy or two that uh, will contribute to the organization in time. But... Uh, what do they say? Many are called, few are chosen, and uh, you just do all you can to limit mistakes. Frank, is there a particular player that you're really proud of drafting uh, throughout your scouting career? Like one that, that you just maybe took late in the first round or, or in the middle rounds, and you're just like, how on earth was I able to snag this guy and get such a producer? Uh, not really, you know, you, you take a degree of pride in, in all of them and you don't forget any of them and you wish them all well. Um, but, um, if there were one to single out, I would say it's, uh, it was an Oshawa resident who actually, his parents still live, you know, 20 minute walk from where we're talking right now in my own house. And 
we drafted him in Oshawa, and we drafted him in New Jersey, and that would be John McLean. So, um, yeah, John would be a special sort of a guy to me personally. Uh, but, you know, you whether he, whether he's a guy that, uh, like John, that went on to have a great career, you know, in that case, he was, you know, we, we, we played a part in drafting the guy twice, so so, so that comes into play too. But uh, as I said, you know, the, the kid that played on your fourth line and Worked, worked his tail off and gave you, gave, gave, gave you everything he had um, and then went on to have a successful life in whatever field, uh, you take pride in those guys too. Yeah, well, first of all, when you look up character in the dictionary, John McLean's pictures are, he's one of them there. So, and his work ethic and uh, we had some things, you know, I mean, but I think Brad Boyce, who Central Scouting had in the 13th round, and Frank. No, actually, you're right. I, I don't. I, I, I'll correct you, Sherry. They didn't have him. Period. That's right. And back in those wow. days, for some reason, I, I'm told right. it's changed now. But back in those days, for some reason, if a kid wasn't on Central's list, it was a resp- at the end of the year. It was a responsibility of the teams to add add That's right. add the name. And so we added his name. Yes. And they put him into the 13th round. That's exactly. I don't know, right. I don't know how they determine. I don't know how they determined that, but. That's what they did, and as you know, I'm not the most intelligent guy in the world. So when I saw 13, I thought, "Well, we should draft him 13th overall." I didn't realize it was supposed to be the 13th round. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, though, it's interesting, Minion. I got to tell you what happened here. We go. He had a right winger that got 40 goals that everybody was talking about, and Frank said, "We're going to this game." He said, "Watch the centerman that's giving him the puck all the time." Everybody's taught not to demean the right winger or whatever it is. And uh, and then we were thinking of maybe we can get him in the second round. This is a true story that Frank and, and Frank says, we're not waiting, we're taking him in the first. And it turned out if we wouldn't have Frank, he would have, was it Belleville that was going to take him? I can't remember. Yeah, I believe it was, yeah. yeah. And so Frank stood up and took him. And and I, when we walked back by tables, people were saying to me, we didn't even have him on our list. So that, uh, I mean, make no mistake about that, that... Uh, you know, when you look at that. So, I mean, when you're into the fifth, sixth, seventh rounds there in the NHL or our late rounds, there's got to be something you see that say he's got a little bit of a chance or something. It's got to be because well, I know. Obviously, obviously, somebody on the staff must have a have a, a positive feel for, for, for any name that uh, is called out. But again, that's something that's something that used to be a lot of fun, to be honest with you. Um those kids in those positions, those later rounds. But that, again, has become more difficult because I don't want to take anything away from the CHL. I'm very much a CHL person as you are, but by and large, selecting players out of the CHL in rounds, you know, at a certain point from five through six, seven, you're not going to get a National Hockey player. The CHL's been picked over pretty well. So you have to go to, at one time, you could go to a Tier 2 in Canada, and there'd always be some interesting people there. But, uh, over the last number of years, unless it's an exception, like several years ago with uh, Fabre and Jost in, uh, in Penticton, uh, the CHL teams are doing such a good job of recruiting. The, the, the Tier 2 uh, has dried up for us to, an, to a large extent in Canada, and uh, high school hockey in the States has dropped off noticeably. So you've got the USHL, and at one time you could... You could take a euro and hold on to that person forever. 
So they were also good hedges, but uh, now you have to sign those like you have to sign a CHL player. So the uh, the later rounds are becoming a little bit more difficult, and you have to uh, have to use your imagination and uh, and and hope a little bit more. So Frank, in 2012, you were with the Montreal Canadiens, and no, don't ask me to remember that long ago. <laughs> well, I'm sure you won't have a difficult time remembering uh, drafting Alex Galchenyuk, who essentially fell right in your lap. And in hindsight, uh, it, it turns out that it was a fantastic pick for for the team. I want to know, though, who did you have higher on your list? Did you have Neil Yakupov or Alex Galchenyuk higher? No, no. It was, uh, that was that was an non-issue for, for the Montreal Canadiens at that point in time. The, that... Uh, that was an interesting time because Mark Bergevin had just joined the staff and uh, trying to convince him that this guy is the, was the guy to draft wasn't it nest, was not an easy task, which was understandable. He didn't play. And, yeah, uh, and uh, we only got to see him very, very late that year, and they went out fairly quickly first round in the playoffs. Mind you, we were there at every game, but still uh, – but the key to Galchenyuk was, uh, was you know, you see the guy play three or four times as an underage where he just stood out. So that was, uh, he's the guy that, uh, he's the guy that we wanted, but at, the, at that particular time, and I understood why, it wasn't necessarily an easy sell with management. But they went along with it, so oh. it, uh, it's all worked out pretty well. Yeah, I know, you were always a believer, and I was too in Galchenyuk because I saw him play against us and it's, it's a f- First year player in our league, he was so dominant; it was just crazy. I saw him playing minor midget in the game at, in the playoffs in Detroit, where they had to advance and they won six four, and he got four goals, two assists. So he was dominant, and everybody loved him. And, and I, I knew Fra- Frank would never tell me; he never shares that stuff. But after the draft, they were very happy to get him. He told me that Frank, what about all this new statistics? They call them new stats guys with all these particular stats that people. And I know a lot of management people are involved in it in the NHL and the Ontario Hockey League and stuff. But a lot of that well, stuff we were doing before, Frank. It's uh, well, it's, I think it's more more of an exact science now. I mean, Roger Nielsen was fooling with that stuff twenty years ago, just just in a different manner and probably not as sophisticated. Um, it's another tool. I believe it's another tool. There's a few, very few people, a minority in in the game that think it's the end all and be all. I think. I think that's not at all the case, and that'll be found out. But it's another, it's another, it's another tool to to work with and to uh, again help you eliminate eliminate uh, mistakes and errors. Uh, just the same as the interviewing process and the physical fitness process and any psychological testing that's done. I mean, they're all they're all meant to to try to help you make uh, make better decisions. Yeah, I think that's uh, speaking of Roger Nielsen. I don't know if I mentioned it before, but Roger Nielsen said that. Frank Jay was the best judge of talent he'd ever met, and I knew Roger came and helped me when I first came in the league. So, Frank, we can't thank you enough for joining us. It's you know we love your insights, and we all know how good you are that know you. So uh, keep punching, and we'll see can't you down you talk, the line. Can't you talk to me a little longer? Because my wife wants me to rake the lawn, and I don't want to do it. <laughs> no, we're not we're not helping you out there. So get to work. <laughs> all right, guys. See, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Frank. Yep, down the road. See ya. What a pleasure it is, Sherry, to be able to talk to one of the best evaluators of talent in the world. Oh, you haven't any idea. 
you have any idea how specific he is. I can tell you a quick story. We went there. He always forced me when we were, he said, who are the three best players in the ice when we get in the car? I'd give him the first couple. And he said, that's obvious. You say the same thing to me when we watch hockey together. That's right. I see where you get it. (laughs) Right. That's funny you say that. And so I mentioned this defenseman. And he said to me, did you notice the hitch when he turns to his right in his skating? I said, ah, it's a bunch of gobbledygook, you know what I mean? You know, and this this is how good he is at his craft when they say, you know what I mean, it's not. And so uh, I go back to watch him. And, a speci- and sure enough, if you concentrated, he loved going to his left way more than his right because of it. And I mean, that's what. But the real issue is what he said about character, how they didn't take players, you know what I mean, that they felt they didn't have character. Well, he said a lot of young hockey players have good character. Right, most of them do. But then we see that they get to the NHL and some of them don't end up having the best character. Well, sometimes they don't have because they didn't have the drive and the preparation. Remember what I told you. It's not the will to win. It's the will to prepare to win. So, Sherry, who are some of the best leaders that you've had on your teams, and who do you see as the best leaders in the NHL right now? Well, it's funny you say that, but, I mean, the McDavid's, the Brad Boyses, I mean, it goes on, the John McLean's that he talked about, and these guys were, like, John McLean, we lost two top players at Christmas, the NHL called up, Tony Tanti and Dave Andrichuk when we were, and John McLean put the team on his back and we went to the Memorial Cup. And Tanty had got 80-some goals, 83 or 81 or whatever it is the year before, and Andrichuk had 59 or 58 goals. I mean, you lose those two guys at Christmas time, and John McLean just, you know, we suffered emotionally. I mean, that's what leaders... You see here, uh, leaders relentlessly upgrade their team. Relentlessly. Matthews and McDavid, they're relentless players, and they just love to play. And they build a self-confidence. And guess what? When we see these, a lot of these young leaders, or Crosby, whoever, that, uh, and they, they make sure by their play, they make sure that people not only see the vision, they live and breathe it. They don't want to. You, you can see the, the real good leaders how they live and breed it, and they establish trust. And they have the courage to make unpopular decisions. Now, we were talking about, I mean, we could go on and on and talk about all the different leaders that we see and how what they do for their team. Let me give you an example of Matthews, 19 years old. They asked him about how he felt about the NHL not going to the Olympics. He said one word, disappointed. But he said he is more preoccupied with helping Toronto clinch a playoff spot, which will be their first or second playoff spot in 12 years, 12 seasons. That's all. I'm more focused on that. So don't get me off it, so to speak, without saying it. That's when you know you got leadership. That's when you know we got, never mind that we got, never mind the fact that we got a great player here. Bobby Clark, when he was captain of Philadelphia, it's a great story. And I knew Bobby Clark when he played junior in Flin Flon, Manitoba. And, you know, uh, good leaders have the courage and no fear for the unknown, these guys. And they were having a meeting 
before, after a practice or just came in for a meeting. They're in the playoffs. They're running down the Stanley Cup. And one of the players in there complaining about that the team owed them 150 175 160 bucks in expenses. And he was yapping about it. You know how you're together in a room, you played the sport, you're waiting for the meeting to start. Bobby Clark stood up, took out his wallet, took two $100 bills out of his wallet, walked over and said, will this cover it? Now shut up. We're concentrating on trying to win a Stanley Cup here. That's leadership. He didn't want any focus on anything. He didn't want to hear about those things. Can you imagine oh, if you were in that dressing room? Can you imagine if you were the player complaining? Can you imagine what that did? Well, it's a lack of focus, really. Sure, but the real issue is everybody in that room knew who the leader was. Sure, we're about to speak to a leader who's a good friend of yours, and he also happens to be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. A very good friend of mine, I'm proud to say it. Uh, killer, uh, he's a Hall of Famer and should be. He's uh, was Ottawa 67's head coach and general manager since Confederation. He's the winningest coach in junior hockey history. He's won two Memorial Cups. He's been named coach of the year. He's, he's such a delightful, good person. And I'm so excited to have you come on the show, Killer. Thanks for doing that. Hi, you're welcome, Sherry. I'm looking forward to it. Killer, uh, I gotta go back, cause those of us, uh, and I just see that uh, uh, Eddie Shore was 22nd on Steve Simmons' all-time great players, and uh, you played for him. Uh, didn't you play in Springfield for him? I sure did, yeah, just for uh, eight years. <laughs> now, what about all these rumors, Killer? What about these rumors? How he was hard nosed, and they weren't—they weren't rumors. They were facts. <laughs> like they tell me, he didn't uh, like he didn't hand out hundred-dollar bills every day to you guys, did he? No, matter of fact, uh, uh, if we won the Memorial Cup three times, the Calder Cup three times in a row, and uh, I remember uh, going in and getting a huge raise of two hundred dollars. <laughs> And then the next year, three. And then the next year, two. All the way up to $4,700 after three uh, Calder Cups. And the guys are coming to the league making six, seven over in Rochester and everywhere else, you know. <laughs> so you guys you guys weren't even paid like like you'd be paid 4700 bucks for the season. And other and other teams, they were getting like 6000 Oh, yeah, a lot of them. I mean, Roger Cody, who was a good friend of mine, I was just talking to him not too long ago. Roger Cody, he was over in Rochester, and anyway, they made a trade. We got Roger with us, and Roger Cody was making uh, $6,500 his first year out of junior. Well, anyway, just to tell you how it went for Roger, uh, the next year he was making... 55 and the next year he was making five he said i'm going the wrong way <laughs> <laughs> now how was he in practices and stuff because there's rumors that he played tough too like when he played like oh he... yeah but yeah when he played he was a physical tough hard-nosed guy and when he ran a practice like we had pat egan as our coach and he had a tough job trying to satisfy eddie and uh, but anyway, Eddie would run a practice. He'd have his own whistle and stand there and, you know, tell Pat Egan where to face off the puck and all this stuff. 
and uh, it, it didn't matter. Like every once in a while, he'd get so upset that we'd go around and if you can just picture, here's this team, uh, a pretty good team, some great players on it. Uh, we, we're walking around doing the duck walk, and if you know what I mean, <laughs> we're right down with our backsides on the ice, and you can only stand there or do that for about a minute. You have to stretch your legs or fall, you know. And uh, he didn't care, and there's certain things that uh, if he wasn't happy, uh, go and do the duck walk. Really? Well, oh, people yeah. forget how good those American League. There was only six NHL teams. Six, uh, uh, yeah, and there was six American at the time. Sure, and uh, the, so, you guys that played in the American League killer, like a lot of you guys, that was it would be playing in the NHL today. Yeah, a lot. Matter of fact, we played against a lot of National League uh, players because sometimes they wouldn't make the team, or they'd be sent down while they're having an injury, or just sent down for. Another purpose. Anyway, uh, there was a lot of uh, National Leaguers in the American League at the time, when you think of it. Right. Uh, we were playing against them, and, but we had such a good team. Our, our strength was our goaltender with Marcel Pai, and we even had Gump Worsley, and then our defense, which was unbelievable. And uh, that's why we, you know, we had some pretty good forwards, too, but uh, that, the strength of our team was our depth. So, so are you guys into uh, the nutrition and stuff? Like your pre-game and post-game meal, was it all gauged with these nutritionists nowadays? <laughs> nutrition? We didn't get enough money to buy a good meal when we had our meal money. Uh, we used to get $3 a day, and that was for three meals. $3 a day? Yeah, $3 a day. Matter of fact, one year we were supposed to get... Three fifty, and Pat Egan took the fifty cents because he was mad at him. <laughs> so, like, what would be a pregame meal and a postgame meal then? Well, you didn't have postgame meals. You you were on your own. I, I remember a lot of the fellows. Uh, you know, they didn't have any money, and no. they they went to the White Tower, bowl of chili and toast. You know, in the old days, it was probably ninety cents, so you could get chili and toast and. I uh, hope that it filled you up. It, it just the guys were so funny, and they were so good that anyway, uh, my mother always told me. She says, uh, "You don't you don't shortchange your stomach, no matter what." So um, I'd go and have a New York sirloin baked potato with a salad, and uh, my meal was about five for the steak and that in those days. But in the other two meals, uh, you probably get by. So. We might have had three meals for $10, so it only cost you $7 a day on the road, not counting what you might have spent for a beer. Unbelievable. It's, I mean, when you see how well they're looked, that's why when these owners, these owners, and when these people in this lawsuit and stuff complain about how they're looked after and say the owners are using them, it's just such a joke, isn't it? In that, in that time, uh, it was very difficult. And uh, what could you do? I mean, we... We were lucky we had a, a team that stayed together when we had the strike, and that's when we started the Players Association in 1967. But it was uh, the guys in Springfield that brought to a head because we just had enough of suspensions. I mean, no matter that you got your salary, uh, but every year, sometime or another, you were fined uh, for some nonsensical thing, and he, t he kept the fine money. Brian, let's fast forward a couple of decades now. Uh, 
you, of course, had a ton of success with the Ottawa 67s. I just want to know how the kids that you used to coach, how they changed over the years. For example, maybe when you were a kid in the 80s and you were trying to teach them, are they any different than the kids that you would see in the 2000s? In all the years that I coached, no. I, I was uh, fairly tough on the ice, but I was, uh, you know, you had to understand that uh, discipline was a major thing, and so we had our discipline with the team, but I always said, if you come in tomorrow with a chip in your shoulder, you're the only one. If I had something to say, I said it over and forgotten. And so that's the way I coached. And you know, it's funny. I was with Paul Coffey the other night, and uh, the great Paul Coffey, if you want to know. And uh, we were at a restaurant, and he happened to see us, and he came over and said hello. And he was he said something, and then we both agreed there's not enough humor in the game now in teaching. Yes. Uh, there's too much in the book. There's too much. Uh, some of the people that are coaching never coached before. If you've never coached before or even played, how do you teach a kid how to pass the puck, how to take a face off, how about proper balance? And But you have to have, I think some of my best speeches were probably humor. Right. Like when you walked out of the room, I bet they were all laughing. Oh, sure they did. We many a times uh, I might have said something, and and whether it was comical or not, if they thought it was comical, and I didn't turn around and say stop laughing. I just kept walking. You know, right. I'll I'll never forget one night we we're in Niagara Falls, and we had a great line, and uh, they were being outplayed in the first period. But it was this fellow by the name of Sean Donovan who. And he's still with the Senators now. He's just a super kid. Mm-hmm. But he had great speed, and he'd leave the zone quick. And he'd get outside. Well, now he had to come back to our zone to get the puck. And a couple times he lost the puck and got checked. And so at the end of the first period, when I we were losing, I think, 4-1 to one in Niagara Falls at the time, he was with Mike Pekka on the line. And I came into the room and gave a couple of guys a little bit of hang. And then I said to Donovan, I said, Donovan, I said, I don't know if you're playing right wing for me or left wing for them. <laughs> Mike Pekka just burst out laughing. I just walked out of the room. Well, everybody in the room laughed. They went out and played like hanging. Second, third period, we end up winning the game. So uh, the best speeches weren't serious and win right. one for the Gipper. Kids are funny, and uh, they adapted, and they enjoyed their time here. Well, it's interesting you say that because... Because your teams did play with feeling, which I think is a you know, I think it's a direct result of the coach. I mean, that what you're talking about. I mean, everything. I go to some of these practices that are so structured, uh, and uh, which I'm not. I'm not against structured practices because you want to get as much in you, but they seem to be more robotic, and your teams always continuously played at a high level, all the time. You're, you're almost always a contender, but it was always a game. And I thought because of you, and I've talked about this to many people about you, they played with a feeling. I thought they really did play with a feeling. That I don't think I misjudged that, did I? No, they, they did, but we were together. Like uh, When we were on the road, I made sure that um, you know our, our owners were great to me because they let me do what I thought was right for the team. And... Uh, we went to uh, good restaurants. I didn't uh, 
shortchange them on the meals. I didn't say, okay, here's the three dollars, go and get your meals. <laughs> uh, we t- we took them at uh, have a breakfast, have what you need, and then we stayed at the Western Bristol place uh, out there. And the meals, our pregame meal and our lunches were between fifteen and twenty dollars a person. Mm-hmm. That was a lot of money for junior hockey, Sharon. You know sure that. Sure was. And uh, so, but we always ate well. And I always felt the kids ate well, they'd play well. And so our, our owners, they said, fine, uh, you know. And I think they understood that uh, the players are the reason we were winning and, and drawing the crowds. Well, you know, I, I felt the same way because and, and you and I used to enjoy each other when we played against each other, the ninety, the 60 minutes. we. But, I mean, I, I would call you and say, who are the good hotels? That right. sponsor in, that, that that you're connected with, and we would always, you know, and you'd always set us up in a good hotel, and we always tried to help the community hockey team. That people, you know, you know there was a loyalty to each other. When you'd call me in Erie, you say, "Say, hey," I say, "Hey, the Marriott is really involved with us, and so forth," and say, "Hey, that's where my team's staying." And they were always, and same with us. You know what I mean? We made sure that uh, there was plenty of food. It was good food, and when I hear all the stuff where they say fast food, I know your teams never ate that stuff. I mean, they might do it on their own when they're, but we we always made sure that that was structured. But more than that, there was an emotion that you developed with your teams when whenever we played that they they were committed to winning. Because I remember those rivalries you had when I was in Oshawa, oh, and yeah. they they were significant rivalries. And uh, but we knew no matter what. When your team was coming on the ice, that uh, the uh, they knew for a fact that we it was going to be a game. That's exactly right. Yep, that's exactly right, and that's a credit to you that uh, because not only understood the you know a number of these guys today, killer, they're not even approachable. Oh, I know that like it's just cut and dried, and like I'm, I remember we'd go on the road and uh, we'd get called back from uh, restaurants. Uh, you team was so well behaved you're welcome here anytime the same with the hotels and we taught the kids and i always demanded that uh, they thank the servers clean the bus Me clean too, the rooms yeah. on the road and everything so it was just little things about growing up and uh, one dad and uh, the dad uh, he, he was a police officer in toronto and anyway he passed away since but it was steve payne and, oh, uh, Steve Payne, I Steve remember Payne him. Steve Payne joined my team. And anyway, it, after two years with me, Steve Payne, we got beat out in Peterborough. He, The dad came into the room and he said, Brian, I just want you to know, two years ago I gave you a kid that was a touch spoiled. He says, you've given me back a man. That's and great. It was, yeah, That's it was great. a, a, great, a great feeling for me. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, that, we, I could, uh, there's numerous people I talk to about play. It's funny you mention that because we all know it. I still remember to this day because we used to do that road trip when it was Kingston and you and Belleville and Ottawa. Yeah. And we were in Kingston having our pregame meal in this restaurant. And I was a little late for it and I was coming in and I was opening the door and these two well, it's you and me now, but I call them elderly couples. <laughs> and, and they were coming out the door, and I was holding the door for them. They said, thank you very much. She said, do you know that group of young men in there that are having dinner right now? I said, yeah, I kind of. Well, would you tell them they're the best-behaved young men I've ever seen in a restaurant? And I said, hey, you know what I mean? It was no different than your club. 
you know, I, I made them take their dishes back to the kitchen. Hmm. Oh, well, yeah. I I didn't make them bring the dishes back, but I certainly uh, did uh, let them know that uh, they could thank everyone responsible. Sure, and the chef, exactly. If we went to a, a buffet, and by thanking them, sometimes you may get an extra scoop of potato right. or whatever. Right. But, you know, it was the idea of growing up, and that was our responsibility. I mean, moms and dads gave, the, gave us the kids, and they said, here, and so if we had them for three or four years, uh, we wanted to make sure that they were all looked after so that they would, the biggest advertising you can get is word of mouth from your players. Oh, there's no question about that. I didn't know, I didn't know, the, I just, I did know now that I remember, you were on the ground floor there for the unions. Uh, yes, uh, when, um, with Eddie Shore, we had that strike against uh, Eddie Shore, and um, I had a threat from Mr. Campbell uh, when he called me and he says, uh, if you don't get those players back tomorrow, you'll never play another game the rest of your life. And at the time, I should have been scared, and I replied by saying, Mr. Campbell, if you hadn't been using Eddie Shore as a threat all these years, I wouldn't be in this position now. And he hung up on me. And the only way that I, I could say that story without having worried about a libel would be that when... He called. My wife, Judy, picked up the phone and said, Oh, Brian, it's for you. It's Mr. Clarence Campbell. Who, who's he? I said, just a National League president. You know, so anyway, that's, the witness was there. And so I, right away I called Al Eagleson and said I was just threatened by Clarence Campbell. And uh, Al Eagleson uh, called uh, Clarence Campbell and said, Be careful, I don't attack your contract next. Anyway, the, they were going to send in replacement players. And they, they stopped, one team did, and after being with us one day, these three players joined our association. I wouldn't let them with us. They, they said, no, no, we want to be with you guys. I said, no, no, when this is over, you'll be going back to your team. You just stay away. And anyway, our team st- stood fast, and there's some great players on that uh, that were mm. part of that team. I'm Billy White, right there from Toronto. Oh, he yeah. was one of them, you know. So I mean, great guy, Billy White. Dale yeah. Rolfe, you know. Oh, Dale so, Rolfe, all these. Oh, yeah, are... like we had some some pretty good names. Yeah. that were national leaguers, and um, they were on the way up, you know. So anyway, we were we were fortunate that that, that these fellows stuck together. Well, you know, Killer, something on a personal note here, and. Uh, you know that my uh, Jesse here is born and raised in Winnipeg, and I was a transplant from Saskatchewan to Winnipeg, and uh, and Judy's a Manitobaite. Is it Gimli? No, well, Win- Winnipeg. They had the San. They had the uh, cottage in Sandy Hook. Oh yeah. Oh, very nice. How about your yeah. summers? <laughs> I used to. Yeah, the summers uh, with the mosquitoes <laughs> going out there, and they'd fly over the island. Oh just goodness to gracious! The mosquitoes. <laughs> I remember you telling me stories. I mean, it was so funny about you sitting on the porch and the mosquitoes and. Yeah. But, uh, but good people, because your wife Judy's a good person, really oh, good yeah. lady, and uh, good people. The best export Manitoba has is their people. So, uh, oh, yeah. and their whiskey. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Keller, we could go on and on and on. I enjoy having you. I really want to thank you for this. You're not on. You, never mind about the fact of what a great coach and a great hockey person you were. You're a hell of a great person. And, oh, any, and I'll fight for that. That it's we, the game was lucky to have guys like you in it. The game was lucky to have you leading younger people. 
And uh, I always say I want good things happen to good people, and you're good people, Killer, and thanks for joining us. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks very much, fellas. Thank good you, Brian. Good to talk to you, Killer. Okay. Bye. Bye now. Thanks. Bye. Sherry Bryan just seems like more than anything, just a very, very good guy. Oh, my God. I mean, he, he, he was such an asset to the coaching world, to the sport. I mean, the fact that he's in the Hockey Hall of Fame is, you know, it's more than that. If you you got to know, I could, I'll tell you stories we'll relate to as we go on in our shows of things I had with him. And I mean, it, it's, he's such, you know, I mean, he's, if you, to know him is to love him. It's just that simple. You know what I mean? You just, same as you, Sherry. Well, I don't know about that, but, <laughs> but I got to tell you this, Minion, I got something for you to think about. Imagine that you won the following prize in a contest. Each morning, your bank would deposit $86,400 in your private account for your use. However, the prize had rules, just as any game has certain rules. The first set of rules would be everything that you didn't spend during the, each day would be taken away from you. And you may not simply transfer money into some other account. You must spend it. Each morning upon awakening, the bank opens your account with another $86,400 for that day. The second set of rules. The bank can end the game without warning at any time. It can say it's over, the game's over. It can close the account and you will not receive a new one. What would you personally do? Would you buy anything and everything you wanted? Not only for yourself, but all the people you love? Even for people you don't know, because I know you, you would help. You would help the underprivileged people. Thanks, Because you couldn't, I really believe that. Thank you. You would try to spend every cent and use it all, whatever way. And you wouldn't just throw it away. You'd help people. And just like our producers back here, those are the good kind of people. Well, actually, this game is reality, Minion. Each of us is in possession of such a magical bank. We just can't seem to see it. The magical bank is time. Each awakening morning, we receive 86,400 seconds as a gift of life. And when we go to sleep at night, any remaining time is not credited to us. What we haven't lived up to that day is forever lost. Yesterday is gone forever. Each morning the account is refilled, but the bank can dissolve your account at any time. Without warning. And we know that. And you've suffered tragedies in your life. And in your family specifically. Well, what would you do with your 86,400 seconds? Aren't they worth so much more than the same amount in dollars? Think about it, Minion, and always think of this, and I mean this to you and our staff and our listeners, enjoy every second of your life, because time races by so much quicker than you think. So, Minion, and our producers and everybody listening, take care of yourself and enjoy life. And here's wishing you, Minion, and all our listeners and all our people, a wonderful, beautiful day. See you next week.